0: Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho with me Eason and me Bex and this is our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner
1: and we'd like to give a big thank you to everyone who has listened to Arrival and our special Chris Rodley episode. Uh, We hope you're enjoying them. It's been great getting feedback from people. It's lovely to know people are listening so please do drop us a line and let us know if there's anything you'd like to see featured in our podcast in the future.
0: So in this episode, we're back to our format of episodes of The Prisoner Themselves, and just to remind you, these are going to be coming out fortnightly, and where possible we'll put sort of bonus episodes out in the intermediate weeks, just like the Chris Rodley one last week. So we began with Arrival uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this time we're off to hear the chimes of Big Ben.
1: So this was the second episode broadcast in the UK and the US, and Although it's the second one in, in broadcast order, in pretty much most orders, if you buy a DVD box, that it's going to be the second one, it wasn't necessarily intended to be the second episode in the sequence. And a bit later on, when we're going to start talking about the passage of time in this episode and how long he seems to have been in the village, how much time is passing, you, you can kind of see how maybe this episode might have fitted in better later on in the series when more has happened in the meantime.
0: Yes, and I think we'll probably come on to it several times over the coming weeks and months. We'll probably end up even doing an episode about it. But uh, the order of episodes in The Prisoner is a much debated thing. Certainly, one way to look at it is at the uh, broadcast order. But even then, there were differences in broadcast orders depending on where it was shown. And so in this podcast, we're following the original UK broadcast order. But that'll actually uh, not necessarily reflect what happened in the US and actually what some of the uh, home releases have done, like you say. And certainly there are probably completely different orders which were never broadcast ones, which actually may fit the overall arc of what might be happening um, in The Prisoner. And certainly I think this is something that reflects maybe the way in which the show was uh, initially Sculpted around an idea that probably had quite limited scope. I mean, certainly Patrick McGowan spoke about having, you know, seven key episodes to the story of the prisoner. They would have had extra ones in there that maybe weren't necessarily relevant to the main driving arc uh, of the show. But also there was this uh, fact that you know it was on for a few episodes. They have a renewal and then they're not sure how to actually get to. The double season so they end up compromising and having these 17 episodes and then probably with the way that they were shooting them as well you know with the uh, production blocks taking place in uh, Port Marion and in the studio as well one wonders if there was a huge amount of flexibility in the final order and I'm not sure if Magoon or any of the creative team were really too worried about the order in which they were shown uh, as long as Arrival was first and Fallout was last.
1: And of course, this is the first episode with Leo McKern as number two. And I think for most fans, he's probably the favourite number two. (laughs) I don't think it's a spoiler to say this is not the last that you see of him. Yeah, He'll
0: he'll appear twice more as number two in the series. I think only one other number two appeared more than once, which is Colin Gordon, I think. But additionally, I suppose, to be really inclusive of the prisoner... You know as a much bigger entity leo mckern's number two also appears in shattered visage the comic that came out in the very late 80s which is meant to be a kind of sequel to the show
1: so shall we dive into the charms of big ben
0: let's do that
2: where am i in the village what do you want information whose side are you on that would be telling
1: so for the first time we get the extended version of the opening where you've got all the same credits that we had with Arrival but then there's the additional bit at the end where you hear the exchange between number six and number two saying where am I in the village and so on I, and the, the famous line I am not a number I am a free man and that little extension to the credits basically extends the backstory for anyone who is new to the show, it it catches you up in, in the briefest possible time to everything that you're told in Arrival, that this is the village and they want information and that's it.
0: Yeah, and also the fact that it uh, reveals that Leo McKern is going to be number two in this episode that also, again, sets up an aspect of the premise that, you know, when that chair turns around, they're going to reveal, um, in most cases, who the new number two is going to be, if there is a new one. And it's nice that they actually in this case again and not in all of them they actually use the actor playing number 2 to do the other half of the uh of the magoon tirade against the village <laughs> so the episode begins with number 6 waking up to the sound of uh, fenella Fielding giving one of her tannoy announcements uh, in the village um, a lot of the episodes do do begin with him waking up for a new sort of caper <laughs> in the world of the prisoner and uh yeah, I mean it's one of those things where watching it again, there are so many weird little details to notice. It's what we spoke about a little bit in arrival, but it's clear even in these early episodes that there are a lot of the motifs, the iconography of the of the prisoner in this you know, in this early uh scene. So we have, for example, you know, a chess set in his house. Um what I like as well, and important for later is there's that wooden globe as well that you or see on the uh
1: next to the speaker. Next
0: to the speaker. Yeah. And again, you know, he, he takes it out on a you know on one of the radios as well. So in so in the first episode, uh Arrival he smashed it up. Um in this case, in order to uh, get rid of the music, he puts it in the fridge.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know why I love that so much. He just puts it in the fridge.
0: I think it also implies that maybe, you know, it makes you wonder every week is he, is he gonna dispose of the radio in a different way? <laughs> is that part of what the prisoner's about? I don't know.
1: And he's he's being watched in his morning routine by number two who's having a chat with... Is that Potter again?
0: Yeah, it's... Uh, I think it's the... Yeah, it's it's Potter from Danger Man. Mm-hmm. Or the actor who played Potter in Danger Man, but it's not actually Potter, I think. Oh. Although later on, he does appear in the series as a character who's referenced as Potter. I think in this case, he's uh, fulfilling the same role he had in Arrival, which was the guy in charge of the labour exchange. Mm. Yeah.
1: And they're having a rather sinister conversation because... It it happens quite a few times in the series, actually, when number two explains that they don't necessarily want to employ extreme physical tactics against number mm. six, even when other people are suggesting them, either because he's too valuable to be damaged, or in this case, they actually just want to win him over, mm. which in some ways is even creepier, yeah. I think. Um, but it, it's clearly setting it up for the fact that this is going to be a long-term game, that they're not going to do anything drastic anytime soon. They're just going to keep chipping away at him.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that the nature of the relationship between this number two and uh, number six, well, all the relationships are are unique, but this one, it does play out in future episodes as well. I don't want to give too much away, but it's interesting how they have this dynamic between Leo McKern and Patrick McGowan here, uh, which is clearly, you know, it really is a cat and mouse game. I think. And what I like about Leo McKern's number two in this episode especially is he is somebody I think who genuinely is you know, well he he completely believes in what the mission of Mm. the village is about. I mean he, you know, he thinks, well he knows that what he's doing is the right thing to do and therefore to me that suggests that that's why he wants to do it properly you know he sees it as a as a relevant cause and he believes obviously that number 6 is important but also there's a respect there even if it is a very sinister interaction as well
1: yeah and when he's making breakfast he makes two eggs but he's boiling them this time whereas in the previous episode you had the whole thing about number 2 already knowing what number 6 would have for breakfast but he has two fried eggs <laughs> This is, he's changing it up now he's boiling his eggs he's
0: changing it up and also this episode has lots of moments when uh number two has to keep updating his folder <laughs>
1: yes that's true
0: <laughs> so then number two is on the phone to the supervisor and he's trying to get information for when uh, a new person is about to be i don't know delivered to the village <laughs> extracted um rendered. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, so so he he's aware that somebody important is is coming a new um a new villager and he specifies that he wants to be there to meet her.
1: And then we cut to number 6 playing chess with the general out in front of the old people's home which is of course the front of their hotel in Port Marion. <laughs> and a- again immediately so there's a second chess reference hmm. in the episode and it won't be the last. Um and it's very significant that the the general starts mentioning that he's thinking about making a chess set for the arts and craft fair that's been announced. And number six starts grilling him about what army he's actually a general from, which prompts a bit of a angry, grumpy old man mm. response, really.
0: Yeah, it's I've kind of read it two ways. One is you can look at it as the general being somebody who is there to try and get information from number six maybe everyone in the village is is part of the game of trying to crack number six and he doesn't like the fact that he himself has been rumbled in some way the perhaps more likely explanation i don't know seems to be that these questions are something that triggers a realization in him that um, although he can uh, talk in very general terms about what we believe is his former life maybe some of these questions are actually triggers that that sort of hit blocks in his memory and that's what creates this you know sudden confusion Mm. and again we've seen in arrival we see it later on and through later episodes as well there's clearly strange things happening involving altered perception and mind manipulation happening in the village so one wonders if after you've been in the village for a long time maybe certain memories that you have maybe the things which he's meant to have as the information which is important to him you know maybe his military past maybe the village can get that information but they actually extract it from you Mm. and therefore you don't have it anymore and therefore there's just a complete mental block when somebody brings it up
1: yeah i also like the fact that it's it's already getting into questions of conformity because when the general is saying you know that there's no point fighting losing battle um you may as well cooperate and when Number Six pushes back, he says, "Oh, you know, I wish I'd had you in my regiment for a few months. The implication being, I would have sorted you out, and I would have made you do mm. the thing that you're supposed to do, and you would have followed orders, and you, mm. you wouldn't be messing about like this."
0: Which is the antithesis to how Number Two believes you should break Number Six in this episode, at mm. least. You know, it's a complete opposite way of doing things. You either, you either try and play along and convince him, or you break him by any means necessary. But the risk of, of. Uh, of breaking him into you know an un an unrecoverable you know form <laughs> is is too great as number two suggests in this episode,
1: yeah. And then they witness the helicopter landing, um, and delivering the new villager who is number eight. And number six asks number two what crime she's committed to uh, to be there. So his interest has already been piqued, mm. and maybe his suspicions as well.
0: And it also has some of the best. Big belly laughs from Leo McKern in this. His <laughs>, laughs are wonderful in this. And I like the fact that there's, there's something playful about the whole thing, even though number two really thinks that he, he is in control of the situation. Um, but the fact that number six is kind of interested in what's going on, it's hard to know if this is one of those moments when number six genuinely lets his guard down. Uh, which fits potentially with how he would be if he'd recently arrived at the village. Mm. But at the same time, it can also be part of this game he seems to always be playing with the village where he knows what game they're playing and he's trying to outwit them or lull them into a sense of thinking that they have him.
1: Then back in the Green Dome, uh, Number Six is having tea with Number Two. And on the desk in front of Number Two's chair, which he's... Sitting completely up inside, like he's completely ensconced by this globe um on the desk in front of him, number six's file is open, and it's the John Drake picture again yeah. the uh the publicity shot from danger Man in in plain view
0: but it also says something interesting, which is if they have this picture, they must have access to lots of information about his former life, which ties into what happens later on in the episode. Mm. They clearly have the same photographs of him. And I know that they've already implied that they have access to information as well in arrival. They have that file on him from, you know, showing his uh, pictures. But it's interesting that that they keep using that imagery there, implying that, you know, they they might be linked to his former employers, whoever they may be
1: in mm. some way. And it, number two is trying to get him to cooperate in even the most insignificant ways. Just trying to get him to say how much sugar he takes in his tea. <laughs> It you know, it would be millimetres by millimetres of cooperation in the hope that eventually they will become centimetres and metres and kilometres in time. But he but he won't even give a millimeter. Mm. He won't even say what sugar he puts in his tea. He makes him get it out of the file. That is the level of stubbornness mm. that he's decided to to put up as a wall around him.
0: Mm. And again I think it plays into exactly his uh, his opening speech in the credits. I think he really is starting to show his grit, implying that he knows how serious this is. Mm. But again, even that idea might be interesting looking at this episode in light of one that maybe is being aired much earlier in the sequence than it originally should have been. He's clearly developed that over time. Mm.
1: So first he, he says that not only is he going to escape, he's also going to escape, come back, and obliterate the village off the face of the earth. <laughs> but then you have that wonderful moment where he stands up, pours himself another cup of tea, and puts three sugars in it. <laughs> so, so far, he switched from fried eggs to boiled eggs, and no sugar to three sugars, mm. just for the sake of not doing the same thing.
0: Mm. And I think the fact that he knows that this is going to wine number two up, <laughs> it's interesting because... It's reflected in number two starting to get a bit touchy with the whole situation. Now he's starting to get a bit frust- uh, frustrated. I mean, his you know his jokes start to subside a little bit, and there's a bit of a crack in this facade um because he realizes, I think, in frustration that it's not going to be as straightforward as he thought.
1: Then on the big screen, they watch as number eight or Nadia, as we'll come to know her, wake up in her own replica of her own house and then look out the window and have that same shock of seeing the village outside that number six had last time and number two says something odd to him he says uh it's just like old times
0: Hmm.
1: which if he hasn't been there very long it's kind of an odd thing to say and again it comes back to that question of is this actually meant to be happening later on Hmm. um you know if, if he'd already been there a few months it would make sense for it to be old times if you only arrived last week it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> really make sense that they're, they're times but they're not that old and then finally he tries to encourage number six to uh, enter into village life by doing something for the arts and craft fair and he finds a little tidbit in his file that he was top of his class in woodwork when he <laughs> was 15 which i've just i've just thought about something but i'll come back to it later
0: yeah, I wonder if this is actually one of those well, obviously it's relevant for the story but I do wonder if this is one of those autobiographical details that McGuin put in as well. Yeah, if, he, yeah, yeah. if he actually was you know, top of his class in woodworking, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting, now you mention it is obviously they go to the effort of uh, making number six sympathise with number eight by allowing him to watch her wake up and experience the same thing. And in retrospect, in terms of how the story works and the Chimes of Big Ben, it now makes perfect sense that they have replicas of things all over the village. Mm. You know, I think it's interesting that they've shown how each time they reveal aspects of the villagers' technology, it does add to how insane the whole place is and the extent to which they will uh, do things to crack people. But again, they haven't really addressed whether this is a village that is designed for anyone, or it's something which is a construct uh, built around cracking number six in particular.
2: File number six, section 42, subsection six, paragraph three, and sense of humour, strong and unimpaired.
1: So he's heading back home, and he meets number eight coming out of her home. Uh, she's confused, she doesn't know where she is, she asks for his help in finding the Green Dome. And he's quite kind of -of matter-of-fact with her, clearly not completely trusting or maybe trying to push to see if how she's going to react to him. She seems particularly alarmed at the way people say, be seeing you. She says, it sounds like a salute Hmm. or looks like a salute. Um, But what I really love about this scene is when she asks if you can get a car, and he says it's just local Hmm. taxis, and he says, you can go anywhere you like as long as you end up back here in the end which is exactly what's about to happen to yeah. him. <laughs> and in fact, just thinking back now to a moment ago when he was leaving the Green Dome after talking to number two, and the last thing number two was saying was, you'll be back, you'll yeah. we'll be back. So there's, it's just littered with clues all the way through. Yeah. You can go anywhere you want as long as you end up back here in the end. <laughs> then later that same evening, he sees her on her way back, having had a very long chat with number yeah. two. Um, invites her in for a nightcap of non-alcoholic vodka. Why would you even make non-alcoholic vodka? <laughs> it doesn't taste of anything. The only point of vodka is it's really alcoholic. <laughs> I don't understand what the point of it is. I wonder if it's cheaper than the non-alcoholic whiskey. Oh, dearie me. Why don't they all bring in their bathtubs? I've probably seen them bring in their bathtubs <laughs> from them. Yeah, and, and they have a, a very spiky exchange where they're, Basically scoping each other out, trying Mm. to see if each other can be trusted, whose side they're on. I like the bit where he he asks if she's Russian, she says Estonian, he says, Mm. oh, so Russian then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's nice in reference to what happens in Arrival as well is you wonder if his suspicion about how long she was with number two relates to the length of time that uh, Cobb's partner was with him. Mm. Uh, with number two uh, in the previous episode as well because that was like the first hint that he knew that something may not be right there
1: yeah and in fact last time we talked about how what it was that Cobb didn't have a number mm. and that everyone just called him Cobb and this time although Nadia does have a number she also still has a name yeah so it's, tw- it's twice in a row now where somebody who has a name instead of a number ends up not being as trustworthy as he thinks they are. Mm. The following day or we assume the following day <laughs> a day at some point afterwards um number 6 is drinking coffee overlooking the beach he sees number 8 putting her towel down and sort of getting comfy on the beach and number 2 comes over to join him for coffee they have an incredibly crucial exchange i think i think this conversation between them is really important where number 6 points out that number 2 is as much of a prisoner as he is because he knows far too much to ever really be allowed to 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 leave or to i mean you never really know what happens to the number 2s when they're not there are they mm. somewhere else
0: yeah it's unclear you know, what the chain of command is that means that one of them gets brought in one of them gets taken away where they disappear and certainly in in arrival one just disappears mm. um so yeah
1: but you you find out what this at least this particular number 2s kind of mission statement is mm. which is that he effectively believes that it doesn't matter who is running the village um that there isn't really any difference between all the sides and that eventually everyone will realize there's no difference between all the sides and you'll end up with one one single government one single functioning political unity mm. it, it, it's kind of it's not entirely clear what he's getting at but it it's he talks about the idea of the whole world as the village Mm. where everybody just i guess does what they're told and has an easy life Mm. because of it
0: which probably fits with the well we discussed it at the end of the arrival episode with that uh, image at the end of the credits in the alternate version which is the earth and, and the galaxy next to it but then it's kind of this all-consuming kind of thing where it zooms on the earth and then it goes pop. I mean, is that is it is the indication there that basically the strategy of the village, if relating to to what number two is saying here, is that eventually the whole thing just falls down, hmm. you know, or indeed goes pop.
1: And then there's a couple of slightly weird editing moments <laughs> where n- number two goes off. And you see number eight going into the water, but it's clearly a different actress <laughs> going going into the sea. And then number six gets up, and you see from one camera angle there's a there's an extra in a stripy shirt walking into yeah. shot, but then from the other angle he's just disappeared. Yeah. It's like where did the stripy shirt guy go? <laughs> and then some more stripy people come in from the other side. Yeah. It's quite quite funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, again, I, you know, it's not you know it's not trying to mock the show, but it is. You know, it's like when uh, they had a uh, stunt double or whatever, Angelo Muscat, in the helicopter in Arrival. I mean, it is it is wonderful that when you see these things happening in, in TV shows. Um, certainly this one, I think it really is a mixture of the usual Port Marion footage and then a huge amount of studio work mm. and then an attempt to kind of put it all together. And actually, you know, it does kind of work. It's interesting that, you know... You can look back at it now and be quite sniffy about the whole thing. But um, it is a little absurd in places. But, you know, to be fair, it's a good story. So you don't really worry about it too much. But when you do watch it, you think, that's not Nadia walking into the water.
1: (laughs) And then Nadia makes a break for it across the ocean. And you see number two looking in her file and finding out that she was an Olympic bronze medalist in swimming. And uh, promptly sends Rover off to get her <laughs> orange alert. And this has got to be the weirdest Rover sequence. Because mm. normally you see Rover and it just kind of suffocates someone. Mm. And you see that image of someone kind of pressing their face and hands mm. through the, the fabric of whatever Rover is. But this one is that it's that remarkable kind of whirlpool drowning sequence. I don't know how they did that visual effect mm. using whatever tools they had at the time to do such a thing but it's it's really quite remarkable mm. and then we also find out apparently that rover can spawn two mini rovers to help drag <laughs> someone back to land <laughs> where, where did the little rovers come from mm. um yeah and then when she washes up on the sea again you get this idea of there being something i don't know poisonous or mysterious about rover because the the hospital workers order number six not to touch her, hmm.
0: and she does appear to be in some kind of catatonic state, staring into space as they sort of lift her up. She's completely lifeless, hmm. um, but her eyes are open. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. They never, you know, it's one of those beautiful things. It's such an, you know, Rover itself is such an abstract thing, and even what it does is completely confusing. But the threat is is all the more menacing because you have no idea what it is and how it's done. What it's done. Um, but yeah it's a you know it's a beautiful scene that actually shows how how scary rover is and it's interesting actually that number six doesn't really have a response to it he kind of just watches and then he goes to the body when uh, it's dragged onto the shore by rover but it's almost like at this point he knows what to expect Mm. uh, of rover which again puts the timeline of this episode a little bit out of whack with where it originally aired so number two then asks number six to meet him at the hospital where uh, Nadia is being well treated held <laughs> i don't know um and he goes there and sees that Nadia is in a room where again it's clear the village uh, subject people in the hospital to very strange experiments and forms of torture as well and in this case um it's one where uh, Nadia is standing on a platform uh, in a room a sealed room uh, with an electrified floor which will uh, buzz every was it four seconds on, four seconds off, uh, and she has a little dish of water, and she can splash water on the floor, and then determine um, what the time interval is, and the time interval is sufficient that she can get to the door and leave. And they're watching to see what is happening, and all the while, whilst she's there, it cuts to the supervisor who is asking her questions over and over again. Um, you know what was in your mind? You know what? You know were you trying to escape? All these kind of things, just repetitive questioning to. You know, try and get answers but I mean the way it's done is just to break her completely monotonous line of questioning that is designed to I think drive you completely insane to the point where you give the answer up
1: Yeah. so they're in an observation room watching through a, a glass I guess it must be a two way mirror right. or something on the other side and I noticed in the observation room there's just a little alcove in the wall with a random lava lamp on it <laughs> Why is there a lava lamp in the alcohol? Why are the lava lamps? We had this last time. there are two basic drinking games you can play when watching The Prisoner. One is that you have a drink every time someone says be seeing you, and the other is that you have a drink every time you see a lava lamp. <laughs> <laughs> Either one would work. So yeah, lava lamp spot number number one. Um but also this this idea of, of what was in your mind. I know last time we were talking about the fact that whoever runs the village, they've got huge amounts of trivia about number six. They know all the facts of his life and he he fills them in on the exact time of his birth. But what they don't know is what was going on inside. You know, what were the reasons he resigned? Mm. That's, that's That's a secret that only exists in his mind. It's something that they can't get from their endless records, from their documentation of a person's life. They can't access what's actually going on inside their head, which seems to be the sort of, the last frontier of privacy that they want to try and break down through these experiments, through these forms of torture. And so by asking her what was in your mind over and over and over again, it's coming back to this idea that it's it's the one thing they can't get at through cameras and bugs and all the other methods that they have of surveilling people
0: yeah it's something intrinsic in someone's reasoning or judgment that uh is unique impenetrable and probably interpretable only by them Uh, so that's the kind of information that they're going after which is obviously why you know the the why did you resign is actually it doesn't require a a factual answer based on um, probably, what was in that original letter, you know he must have given a reason in some way, but the fact is, is that's not what they're after. they want to know the underlying sort of ideology that drove this decision making and If you view the village as something which is interested in that amount of information, it just becomes even more sinister
1: and then finally, number six agrees to uh participate in a few village events. Mm. Um, if they will ease off on um, their interrogation of number eight Mm. and let her go back to her house. So he agrees to make something for the Arts and Craft Fair. Mm. And uh, you've got to think that at this point, he's already got it in his mind, roughly what his plan is going to be. And that while they think that maybe this is some kind of strange capitulation that they weren't necessarily expecting from him, he's actually already got another motive for agreeing to make some nice woodwork for their craft fair. And also we get a little reprise of the Purple Corridor with all the people with the headphones and the masks Mm -hmm. and the uh, music, the boys and girls come out to play music. and I only noticed this time that the people sitting in the corridor, they're moving their feet up and down in unison. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I I can just imagine them filming that and there's someone standing behind the camera shouting like, feet up, feet down, feet up, feet down. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so then we see uh, number 6 and number 8 having breakfast in the morning and as they come outside and bump into number 2 uh, number 6 mentions that they're off to the woods who's going to start carving something a piece of abstract art made hmm. from wood for the uh, Arts and Craft Exhibition and after a bit of fretting about whether or not they had any dangerous tools to uh, which I, I don't know how you would even be able to make something out of wood if you didn't have at least some kind of sharp <laughs> implement, um, and, and Number Six explains that he's going to make his own tools. And I'll, after a crack from Number Two about you know doing like the caveman did, um, Number Six is something that really strikes me. Or
0: chimed he, with you. It chimed with <laughs> me.
1: He says, he says, I, I I may even invent fire, or something like this. I I mm. may invent fire, and to me this didn't strike as a reference to cavemen inventing fire they struck a reference to prometheus Hmm. so the story of prometheus is that uh prometheus was one of the titans and uh he was a bit of a, a trickster he tricked the gods he uh he stole fire from the gods and gave it to uh to humanity in some of the stories he's giving it back to humanity after the gods withheld it as a punishment and by giving fire back to humanity he angers zeus so zeus punishes him by chaining him to a rock and every day an, an eagle comes and pecks out his liver and then every night his liver grows back and then the next day the eagle comes and pecks out his liver again but there there are quite a few different versions of the prometheus story um there's there's actually two tellings of prometheus in hesiod one in theogony and one in works and days but basically hesiod seems to be on the side of the gods in that uh, he portrays prometheus as being um a trickster as trying to get one over on the gods who shouldn't be um kind of belittled or dismissed in that way and by taking fire back and giving it back to humanity and angering zeus what does zeus does he doesn't just punish prometheus by chaining him to a rock He also punishes the whole of humanity by making them kind of work and toil for what they have so before this the idea was they everything came easily things just all the food they wanted just grew from the ground but after prometheus steals fire and gives it back to them they suddenly have to work and toil to make anything grow out of the ground it basically it makes life hard In some respects, it's kind of similar to the sort of Garden of Eden. Everything was wonderful before, and then they gain some kind of knowledge or skill or something like that. And then life becomes hard afterwards as a punishment that they shouldn't have had. this, This power, this knowledge, whatever it is. And this makes me think of just going back to the conversation that number six and number two had over coffee before Nadia went for her swim. Um, when number two is talking about a kind of an, an end to war where the whole world could be like the village, but that being a place where everything you could possibly need is there for you, but only as long as you don't attempt to have your own mind, effectively. <laughs> as, as As long as you give up having your own thoughts and opinions then life will be easy. You have all the food that you need. You don't really have to do anything. I mean, in some respects, life in the village looks pretty nice. They're just hanging around playing chess all day. <laughs> They're going for a swim. They don't really seem to do anything. Um, but but on the other hand, it seems like a, a pretty high price to, to pay for an easy life. But the other version of Prometheus I was thinking about was in Aeschylus, his uh, Prometheus Bound series of plays. In these plays... Prometheus is very much the good guy he's he's shown not just as someone who brought fire to humanity but also someone who was responsible for bringing science and skill and knowledge to humanity and that was what angered Zeus that, that basically he had given humanity all of these gifts that the gods did not want them to have and he's painted as a much more heroic figure than he is in Hesiod so, um, although he's in a dire situation, the, the play basically revolves around him talking to people who come and visit him while he's chained to his massive rock with an eagle picking at his liver every day. It's charming. Um, but he's he's shown as a defiant and unyielding figure mm. that no matter how much torment is dropped upon his head in this terrible situation that he is trapped in, I mean, he's, he's physically trapped in this place. He's completely defiant completely unyielding he he refuses to give in to zeus basically and to me this is this is again like number six's role within the village Mm. in that by refusing to to play along and give the gods the people in charge of the village what they want he is in some ways suffering unnecessarily he doesn't have to go through all of this these kind of torturous nightmares he's these um games that they keep playing with him he could just give up but he won't so it's in, in some places it's a bit masochistic really but in in being so unyielding he effectively refuses to acknowledge that the gods should have any power over him so and it's a bit, a bit of a rabbit hole that went down but there you go
0: i concur <laughs> <laughs>
1: In short, number six is Prometheus, and he's attempting to bring the the knowledge and power of freedom to the people and angering the gods as he does so, and ends up chained in the village and variously tortured. I mean, there aren't any actual eagles, but uh, yeah. I can buy know. that. <laughs> Subsection
2: six, paragraph four, add... On the other hand, persecution complex amounting to mania, paranoid delusions of grandeur.
0: So, number six, and number eight, uh, journey into the woods. Uh, what I like is that even though he's, well, for most of this episode, he's not in his uh, classic jacket—you know, this kind of very dark brown, black jacket with white piping. You still get that motif in his sort of tracksuit he's wearing, because oh, yeah. like dark blue with the white uh, with the white stripes on it as well, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, but he goes to the woods and they, he has a strange conversation with uh, Nadia, where they discuss in very abstract terms her escape attempt and his belief that you know that she might know more about the village than she's letting on. It's interesting because they're playing this game now. I mean, obviously, you know, by the end of the episode, you know exactly where everyone stands. Um, but at this point, it's it's unclear how much number six truly trusts her Mm. because i think in some way he is partly blinded by his desire to get out of the village so you're never quite sure if if he's doing what he's doing to manipulate those around him like number two or he's genuinely hopeful that maybe there is a way out of the village or a mixture of both it's all a bit confounded in that way but in any case um number eight decides to uh carry on alone she heads back and in a very short space of time uh number six um who's uh, who's got like a stone axe with him um decides to take down a tree and carve it into the first part of his abstract art piece which you know on one hand it looks a bit like a, a church door <laughs> a bit a bit like a boat i don't know i don't know what's going there um, but yeah, he kind of, you know, he, he carves it out of the trees, chiselling things away, all in the space of about 20 minutes. Oh. And to be fair, the tree he chops down uh, is not the one they show being chopped <laughs> down. Nor is it the one that Liam McEarn is probably watching as well.
1: It's quite, it's quite Ron Swanson of him, really. Yeah. He, he, he's literally like, no, I'm not even going to buy tools. I'm going to make my own <laughs> tools and then chop down my own tree and build my own boat. <laughs> I'm going to have some whiskey while he does it.
0: With no alcohol in it.
1: Oh, no, that's a problem. And then at one point, number two turns up to uh, see what's going on and have a chat with him um, and mentions that even the tools that he's got are illegal, Mm. but he's going to turn a blind eye or or wink a blind surveillance eye Mm -hmm. to it because uh, he wants him to participate.
0: Yeah, and he references the fact that the exhibition itself is two weeks away. And earlier on in the episode, they've said that it's... uh, you know six weeks away mm. implying that this episode is potentially taking place over a reasonable span of time it's not like a little caper which is happening in um over sort of a one or two days and certainly that explains um how in that time you can imagine that we're not privy to a lot of the interactions that are happening between uh, numbers two six and eight they're mm-hmm. so probably it's kind of clever because it means that their relationships actually move forward quite a lot in this episode the nature of their um, of their interactions just changes, and they all become a lot more familiar with each other over the courses. But mainly because they've probably been hanging around um, cat and mouse style for you know six weeks.
1: Then in the evening, just as curfew is about to fall, uh, number six and number eight have a chat outside number six's house about where exactly Nadia knows the village to be, which is. In Lithuania, not that far from the Polish border, and what exactly her escape plans had been, if she'd been able to keep swimming, and what I love is the fact that he—he's obviously got the radio back out the fridge at this point, <laughs> or someone has, uh, but he then uses it against the people who are surveilling him by taking it outside, so that the the kind of soothing evening music disguises the whispered conversation they're having,
0: and the fact that she says that uh, she works for a government but won't reveal which and the fact that that may parallel number six's former job is kind of interesting because they never re- obviously really talk about what he did before and although by the end of the episode there is an implication that it was some kind of government role some high level government role it's nice that they occasionally drop these hints in at what the backstory might be but it's also important that they They never give enough detail that means that you kind of maybe preempt what number six's actions might be or how he might react to things. It's just giving you enough backstory to make you wonder what it could be. But you're always stuck in the present in the village trying to work out what's going to happen next rather than what came before. So number six and number eight then arrive at the art exhibition. And as they're going in, uh, number two jumps out and he wants to grab number six to speak to some of the judges because already the work is on display and clearly it's triggered some discussion amongst everyone Um, again in reference to the fact that this is a abstract piece it's kind of you know it's clear that there's something funky about it uh, which is going to be confusing to most people they go in they enter and actually you just see some interesting shots of the other pieces of art in the exhibition which have been uh, made or crafted by um, other members of the village and I mean, the one unifying theme about them is that they all feature the head of uh, number two.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're just absolutely everywhere. There's walls and walls of portraits of number two done in different art styles and different mediums. There's, there's sculptured busts, there's watercolours, sketches, oil paintings, everything you can possibly imagine. Mm. But there's, I've, I've watched this scene over a few times and there's a few artworks in there that really jump out amongst all the others. So first of all, the first one they really look at when they come in is the Admiral has made his chess set that mm. he was talking about making earlier. And you get a nice close-up when he holds up the King. He says, I'm particularly proud of the King. Mm. And and the camera zooms in and you see that the King has been given the face of number two. Mm.
0: I thought that was the important point of it, until you pointed out what the origin of that chess piece might be.
1: Yeah, so aside from having the face of number two, the king is clearly meant to be like the king from the Lewis Chessman chess set. So the Lewis Chessman, it's a chess set that was made in the 12th century. It's probably Norwegian, although there's some debate, some people think it might be Icelandic. It's probably Norwegian. And it was found buried on the isle of lewis in scotland in the 1830s and it had been buried for hundreds of years it was like this this kind of square stone almost kind of coffin like mm. thing someone had clearly buried it there to keep it safe that one of the theories is that it, it might have been a merchant traveling from norway to ireland um because at that point hundreds of years ago that island would have belonged to norway not scotland mm. um but anyway it, it was found there are dozens of these 12th century chess pieces in there. Most of them are made from walrus tusks. Mm. Some of them are made from whale teeth. <laughs> but they've survived remarkably well. And the, the style of them is, is really iconic. You can find lots of images on them online. Some of them are in the National Museum of Scotland. Some of them are in the British Museum in London. And it was last year I was at the British Museum and I saw some of them. And I'm going to put some links up on the website to some images i've also got a side-by-side comparison of number two as the king chess piece Mm. and one of the kings from the the lewis find Mm. um that i'll tweet out but i don't think there's any doubt at all that they they've done that deliberately Mm. because the similarities they're wearing the same kind of crown sitting on the same throne they've both got a sword across their lap um even the way that the robes fall Mm. is exactly the same And I'm so intrigued as to why they chose to do that. Why they chose to have him carve the chess set specifically to look like this 12th century Nordic set found buried on a Scottish island in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, because they have so many references to chess throughout the series, but this is the only point when they are actually using a non-classical set. I mean, the way they could have done it, would have been to show a traditional uh, king piece but mm-hmm. with the head of number 2 but the fact they've chosen this one and kept that as the style for the other ones is very strange um yeah it's i mean when you pointed it out I you know you showed me the pictures I was I was pretty astounded by that but yeah, I think you're right like what we'll do is we'll tweet some of these things out and um put them on the blurb that goes alongside the episode as well so if you're listening go to the website and uh we'll put some of the pictures up that kind of show some of the comparisons and if you you have any more information about why they chose this chess set or you have even a you know a theory or speculation as to what the relevance of uh, the Lewis Chessman is in the context of uh, this scene or the prisoner itself please do drop us a line because we'd love to find out more about what this could all mean.
1: Mm. And some of the other ones that jumped out at me um, when you see the judges when the judges are sort of Asking number six what his abstract work means. Behind them on the wall, there are several portraits of number two. But on the top left hand corner, there's a really brightly coloured sort of modernist still life that stands out from everything. It doesn't have a number two on it at all. It's a, it's a wine bottle and a bowl of fruit, and then behind it, there's a window with a, a bright blue sky. And again, I'm just I'm mystified as to why they chose to do that. It's instead of just another picture of number two, and why it's very specifically in shot. Whenever you see the judges, you can see it there in the corner, and it's so bright. I mean, honestly, it could be that they were dressing the set and they realised they needed an extra picture, so they just got a picture from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the answer, but it's it, it kept catching my eye every time I every time I watched it. A couple more things. One is that. When number two is giving his speech and announcing the prizes, behind him there's a large circular relief portrait of him in profile. And it looks like a giant coin, you know, the way you would put the head of a a monarch or an emperor um, in relief on a a coin that you issued. I mean, I know in in some countries you might put a politician in them, but particularly in Europe, you would really, it's monarchs and emperors Mm -hmm. really is what you would expect to see and at first it reminded me of roman coins and the uh, the the faces of the emperors that would have been stamped on them but what's unusual is that he's facing left and on roman coins almost all roman coins you will find the emperor is facing right mm. on the coin um there are some where they're facing left but they're very rare compared to the ones where across almost all emperors across the whole of the roman empire and I was doing some reading on it and it seems that no one is really entirely sure why they were occasionally facing left. There are some theories like um, that, that left was considered to be unlucky mm. and sinister. I mean, it's literally where the word sinister mm. comes from of being left-handed um, or that, that there's something to do with emperors looking left being more martial and having more kind of military regalia in the, in the portrait. But no one really seems to know. Mm. And and then I realised why it seems so odd to me is that on British coins, obviously the Queen is on them, but she's facing right. And for our whole lives, that's mm-hmm. those are the coins that we've had. But it turns out that um, in Britain, what they do is they alternate between monarchs one will be facing right then the next one will be facing mm. left on their coins and the next one will be facing right on their coins and there have been a couple of times where a monarch has insisted they wanted to be facing a certain way but for the most part you know when we get king charles the mm. 3rd he'll be facing left on all the coins <laughs> when uh when we get them but it, it it just it i realized looking at it why it seems so odd was because he was facing left mm. and on almost all the coins i'm used to seeing and all the roman coins i studied when i was doing stuff at university and all that they were always facing right
0: mm. and what about the tapestry that's uh that's on number 38's piece of art
1: yeah so this this stumped me i'm afraid <laughs> um, you're on a roll <laughs> i'm sure it's, it ha- it's it's i'm sure it's supposed to be something it's too it, it it's like there's some spark in the back of my mind that knows it's something but i can't figure out what it is the the, the style the the period of history the art style if it's meant to be mimicking a particular portrait if anybody knows if anyone knows what that tapestry is a riff on Hmm. because i'm sure it's a riff on something i even did a reverse google image search and i i couldn't (laughs) get anywhere with it so if if anyone wants to treat us with a theory about why number two looks the way he does on the tapestry i would be absolutely fascinated to hear it because there is so much else going on in that room in terms of art mm. you know art spanning thousands of years literally thousands of years you've got you know roman coins um 12th century chess pieces modernist still life there's everything in there mm. and these they've got to be deliberate choices to a certain extent so yeah I had any theories about that tapestry? I would love to hear them.
0: Yeah, that's a job for you, listeners. <laughs> so then uh number two uh introduces number six as the artist uh to the three judges and he um he kind of asks him to Well, I, well he kind of asks the judges to ask questions. Um but it's interesting what uh what number six says in response.
1: Yeah, so he, he comes out with this stream of nonsense about how to interpret his work. <laughs> and and you know they the judges will occasionally come up with something and he'll say oh yes right first time <laughs> yes you knew it was a church door or uh, you know just 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 absolute rubbish about um then this abstract piece is a barrier or an escape mm. and i can't tell if he's taking the piss out of abstract art and the way in which it doesn't really seem to mean anything or that you could interpret it to mean anything um you know, sometimes you, you go to a gallery and you look at the explanation for a piece of abstract art, and you just think, I could I could write anything and stick it over that, and people would walk up to it and read it and go, <laughs> yes, yes, I agree that this, this is what that means. So I I can't tell if if it's a a bit of a piss take of that, or if um in some way it's Magoo and getting at. Basically what we are doing, which is over analysing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I spent far too much time today uh looking at pictures of tapestries, <laughs> trying to figure out what that and it it's probably isn't anything. Yeah. So and we do know that McGuin didn't like explaining
0: yeah.
1: what he was doing.
0: So maybe it's more of a riff on that. You know, it's that it's that uh, view that, you know, your interpretation is 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 just as correct as anyone else's.
1: Yeah. When, when he says it means what it is, yeah. That that he he could equally say that about the prisoner itself. It yeah. means what it is. Yeah. Um. It, it's it's the same approach that David Lynch takes to things, which is that whatever you think it is, that's the right answer for you.
0: Yeah.
1: It means what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what's with the reference that Number Two makes to uh, Number Six being? Another Epstein on our hands.
1: So I I think this must be Jacob yeah. Epstein.
0: Who was a sculptor. Yeah, mm. he
1: was like a, a British-American sculptor. Um, he was, I think he was like one of the early abstract modernist mm. sculptors. Um, I apologise if I'm angering any art historians out there with my flagrant abuse of words that mean very something very specific. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Early 20th century... Um, you know, Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth came after him, he was like one of the first <laughs> you know <laughs> but that's who I think it, it must be
0: and getting back to the uh, art exhibition itself uh, number two is on the stage announcing the winners of all the prizes and number 38 the woman uh, who made the tapestry with number two's face on uh, she wins a prize for her age group round of applause, collects a prize uh, but then the winner of for like a prize that covers all the main categories is number six with his abstract, uh, abstract art. Yes. Um, and when he goes up to uh, collect the prize, he gives a, a nice speech, which again is starting to play into potentially what number two and the village want to hear. It's kind of, it's almost like he, he's making them think that he's bought into the conformist kind of fantasy that, that number two would wish him to. And indeed, he says that with his 2,000 work units, which he uh, has won as a prize, he wants to um, use them to buy Number 38's large tapestry. But again, I'm not sure that was originally part of his plan. Because I'm not sure if he knew that Number 38 was going to make something like that. Because as we see later on, it'll become part of his uh, reconfigured abstract art, the vital part of it. But you do kind of... Yeah, it's an interesting thing. But almost even if it wasn't planned, it still is, you know, it's him probably seeing an opportunity to rile the village even more by using that um, in his escape plan. Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: File number six, section 42, subsection six, new paragraph five. Overweening sense of self-importance. While here, his egomania has, if anything, increased...
0: So we cut to the night and number eight and number six meet up uh, on the beach where number six has gathered all the parts of his abstract piece of art, skipping over the fact that he must have got it out of there and no one would have known. (laughs) Um, And he assembles all of the uh, three pieces of his uh, work for the exhibit into, surprise, surprise, a boat, which he's going to plan to make his escape with with Nadia.
1: And there's this wonderful small moment of wordless storytelling in this when one of the first shots that you get of the night time is the village flag with the penny farthing on flying in the wind, which isn't just a sign of a a symbol of the village, Mm. but it's also telling you that there's good wind for them to go sailing. Mm. And a, a show that took its audience for granted would probably have a character say to another character, oh, we've got good wind, let's mm. go. But in here, it's, it's literally just implied. Mm. You see a flag, and it has, it has multiple layers of meaning within the purpose of telling the story in just that split second, and that's all that you need. There's good wind, the flag's flying, they're going to go sailing.
0: Using number 38's tapestry of number 2 as the main sail. Mm.
1: So then, by daybreak, they've already made it quite far out. Yeah, from like 30 miles or something? Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, they, the people monitoring number six notice that he's not in his home. His mm. bed hasn't been slept in.
0: It's quite eerie though, shots of Number Six's apartment, but with no with nothing going on. Yeah.
1: Mm. Although his bed is very neatly made. I wonder if he did that himself. Anyway, I don't I I don't know why I thought about that. Uh it just looked like a hotel turn down service had been in to make it up for Yeah,
0: him. but the maid would have come in and done it.
1: Yeah. Um but they soon find them. Uh, sailing off out to sea and send Rover after them with an orange alert.
0: Yeah. And I think this is where I think it starts to get interesting because it's unclear how much (laughs) anyone is really complicit in the whole endgame here. Yeah. Because firstly, you have Supervisor who has a slight smirk on his face when he has identified uh, six and eight in the boat. He calls number two, and they know that they've gotten away. They know exactly where they are on radar, and they've. It almost seems to imply that they've let them get that far, but still, they release Rover in the orange alert, which I presume is to make them think that the plan, well, uh, to make number six and eight think their plan is working mm. by uh, releasing Rover. It would then make them feel that the village knew that they'd escaped and were trying to get them.
1: Yeah, but everybody in the control room is behaving as if this is someone genuinely making an escape. Yeah. And there isn't anyone there for them to be pretending to. Sure. Unless this is such a, a need-to-know plan hmm. that the lackeys in the control room aren't even supposed to know that yeah. there's something else it's going on. meant to be on.
0: treated like it's a, um, a real escape. Yeah, but again, it's it is un, it's unclear what's going on. Because if the orders have come in saying, you know, that you have to track number six down, if there is actually some bigger ruse involving the role of number eight in this, as we do come to realise, you know, one wonders why, as the audience, we're presented with a viewpoint that suggests that, you know, the people in charge seemingly cannot be trusted with uh, the details of this plan. They're merely there to, uh, well, as pawns to Mm. kind of, you know, keep the thing going, which is strange. But if you think about what number two was saying early on in the episode, he does seem to have such a profound belief in what the village is doing that maybe he believes in it anyway. Mm. So maybe that's, you know, whoever runs the village, maybe that is the uh, strength they see in using. Number two, to have somebody who genuinely believes in it, then they will actually go to any and all lengths to do the villagers bidding. But yeah, it's kind of unclear where the motivations are, but maybe we don't want to look too far into it. <laughs> in,
1: in any event, they're making their escape uh, across the sea. They're almost at the the village, the fishing village, that Nidia said she was aiming for when they see Rover coming after them. So they decide to just swim for it. Uh, and handily, one of Nadia's Polish contacts is there with a gun who uh, takes a few shots at Rover, who doesn't actually seem to get that put off by getting shot very clearly several times, mm. which just makes me even more deserved about what that thing is.
0: <laughs> but one thing additionally that does imply that uh, number two and the supervisor are aware of this being a plan, um, a deliberate one, um, is the fact that clearly, although Rover gives chase, it gives up at a certain point. Mm. So it's designed to show the threat, but almost seem like it's receding because it's under attack. Uh, whereas actually what it is doing as we come to learn is is push number six and number eight uh, in the direction of actually trying to carry out this plan uh, where they... Try and escape to London. Hmm.
1: So they make it to the shore. They meet up with Nadia's um, Polish contact. Uh, Number six gives him a coded message to transmit to London. And then before they get in the box to be transported in secret across sea and air back to London, the crucial moment where he decides that he's going to ask for the watch, because his own watch Hmm. is busted from being in the sea, she should have got a waterproof watch. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, so he asks for the watch from uh, the Polish contact so that he can time the journey to make sure that it's actually taking as long as mm. it should. So even at this point, he's clearly still suspicious. Mm. He wants to make sure that however long it takes to London, that is actually how long they're going to be in that box mm. for.
0: Yeah, the fact he s- suspects something here, um, it's hard to know whether he worries about this specific plan or if it's clear that when he's out of the village to him maybe this seems too easy mm. and he's just paranoid about what might be happening uh because even by the yeah as as we see things play out later on it's not like he's always assuming that um this is a, a trick being played on him
1: and then we see them kind of rattling around inside this wooden mm-hmm. crate as they make their journey. We see them get loaded onto a, a boat. We see the plane take off, mm. which is all quite crucial, really, because it does seem like they are actually travelling <laughs> a long way. And we see Fotheringay get his call that the message has been mm. delivered.
0: And he seems excited to hear about the fact that number six is is returning. So again, it's it's part of this idea that it's unclear who's in on the plan mm. at this point. Um, although, as the episode plays out, we do find out more about who is involved.
1: Yeah, can you remember where it was that we heard that? You know, that wooden divide that was put into the crate, hmm. so that there's like a there's like a wooden divide between number six and number eight inside the crate. Yeah. It, that we we read or heard it somewhere. Someone talking about the fact that it was Patrick McGoone who wanted the divide put in between hmm. them, so that there was no suggestion of anything untoward happening inside <laughs> the box.
0: I th- I can't remember where we heard that. I think I know what you mean. I think um, it must have been rooted in sort of the many conversations that take place about you know with you know with McGowan being a a strict Catholic and wanting to shy away from any uh, evidence of contact with women who weren't his wife on screen. I suppose whether it was in character or not, and the same reason why he didn't want to do Bond and, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it might be that it might have been the Bond conversation.
1: It might have been, yeah. Uh,
0: at the Elstree event, yeah. I think, yeah.
1: And all the way along the journey, you have this sort of recurring, cute reference where Nadia keeps calling him Big Bill. Because mm. earlier on, he wouldn't tell Nadia his real name, even though she was quite happy to, to be mm. Nadia instead of number eight. Um, And then after she mistakenly refers to Big Ben as Big Bill, she then uses that as his nickname mm. Uh, thereafter instead of number six. Mm.
0: So finally they arrive in London. And again, I mean, whoever's behind this ruse, uh, you know, they're doing a very good job of clearly moving the crate around and sort of tipping it up on its side. And as they are wheeling it into uh, the office, you know, it's interesting how, you know, number six, and number eight emerge, having sort of been quite battered by the, <laughs> um, by the journey. One thing I remember of this is, and it was, a, again, I mean, I'm sure these things might have been quite common, but in the earlier scene with Fotheringay, um, I'm not sure if you glimpsed it at this point uh, when they show the office again but again he has one of these wooden globes on his desk mm. which are the same kinds of ones that uh, are in Number Six's room back in the village.
1: Oh the one next to the radio. Yeah
0: so I think it's kind of interesting that they use that same motif again I mean I'm sure they must have been quite common but it's interesting that they make a point of highlighting it uh, you know, on the bookcase in the village and uh, on the desk here as well. So yeah, there is a welcome party ready to uh, meet number six and number eight, uh, which comprises a couple of delivery people who clearly work for the government or whatever. A character referred to as the Colonel, and also Fotheringay himself.
1: Yeah, and after he introduces Nadia, she and Fotheringay and the delivery men leave, leaving number six alone with the Colonel to be debriefed.
0: Yeah, and the Colonel... So... It's interesting. I um we'll touch upon it again in later episodes, but although this is the character who's referred to as as the colonel here, there are references to a colonel in in other episodes. So we'll try and remember to to bring that up again once we hear about it. In the same way that there are multiple references to the general, which has a different meaning in this as well. Um it's interesting that they decide to to have these references to to a character called only the colonel here, but they're showing him here. It could be a different person later episodes.
1: And of course, outside the office, you can hear the sounds of central London and you can hear well, you can hear Big Ben mm. in the background. Um, and this is a crucial question of geography because in central London, obviously Big Ben is on the House of Parliament, which is on the north bank of the Thames in central mm. London. And all along that north bank, are several other government agencies in other buildings, <laughs> including, I believe, the intelligence services. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, if whatever office he's expecting to emerge into mm. is very clearly within the sound of the times of Big Ben, yeah. it's, it's be got to these. be one of those places. Yeah, yeah. It it has to be one of those government offices, and maybe the intelligence services.
0: Yeah, it's not just a um. You know, a nice little plot point you know you know there there must be some relevance to you know to its location as well um but again it's one of those it's one of those hints that may mean a lot but it may be nothing um but it's wonderful how how you put enough of a sprinkling of background into these things and it really gets you thinking about what could be going on without ever giving you a really definitive answer
1: so the kernel starts interrogating number six Mm um, accusing him of having gone over to the other side and then come back as a double, triple agent, whatever mm. that would make someone. Um... Which again
0: reflects the conversation which number two is having with him earlier on mm. about, you know, one unified village and things like that. This is and how both sides essentially might be the same. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But number six is effectively grilling him in return. He's saying, Are you sure you haven't got a village here? Mm. Um, you know, he says I risk I risked, I risked our lives to come back here because I thought it was different. It is isn't it? Isn't it different? Hmm. The implication being that he's beginning to suspect that it's not really different at all.
0: I mean, what do you think about the fact that he uses the term "a village" in that statement versus using "the village" when he's talking about it other times?
1: Yeah. So, is at, at this point is he thinking that it was a village run by the other side? But if the two are just looking into a mirror, then he now wouldn't put it past his own side having their own village for their own purposes Um, and and this kind of brings me on to the other meaning of the chimes of Big Ben in this episode so obviously it's a plot device Hmm. to unravel what's really going on Um, it's a, a geographic clue as to what his job might have been that close to the corridors of power but also it's it's not just a a very, very famous landmark and a national symbol of Britain. It's probably the most famous landmark in Britain. But it's intrinsically connected with concepts of democracy and democratic reputation and who is really supposed to be in charge of running anything. Mm. So when we see these people who are apparently from the British establishment, who now seem to be in on the entire thing, it's it's an attack at the heart of the very idea of democracy itself, and Big Ben is an emblem of that. Yeah. It is the emblem of the very building in which British democracy happens mm. or doesn't happen, perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point. He's, I think, for a show that often told uh, told stories which were, you know, highly allegorical. <laughs> you know, I think, um, although topics of uh you know about uh democracy the nature of democracy were explicitly done in episodes like free for all here like you say under the guise of it being a a kind of a caper episode um it does have a tremendous amount of weight and again it plays on the idea that he he was part of that establishment as well in Mm -hmm. some way because they reference or the colonel says something like uh you're in a post of post of the highest possible secrecy um so you know it's you know again i'm gonna you know i'm ignoring all this john drake business about him being a secret agent this guy was probably a high level government employee it's unclear what branch he was in but he was part of the democracy which he seems to have found a flaw in because it wasn't what he believed it originally was. It's that lack of faith which is kind of interesting here. At some point he lost he lost the belief in what he was doing being the right thing to do. Uh, which is interesting because earlier we've had so many conversations with number two. Who is completely engrossed in the belief of the system that he's part of. Mm. You know, number two believes what the villagers is doing is the right thing to do. He believes that he is doing the villagers' bidding for the right reasons. And in reference to the colonel's question about you know, wanting to know why number six resigned, he explicitly talks about the fact that he no longer believed in the nature of the work he was doing and/or the system he worked for.
1: Yeah, because when he when he almost comes this close to revealing why he resigned before Big Ben Strikes Eight, and, and he says it was a matter of conscience, mm. and then he begins to say, because for a very long time, so this was clearly something very personal, something that was a question of, of his own personal ethics, and something he had been thinking about for a very long mm. time. But what that is...
0: Mm. And again, this idea of time as well, I mean, it's a bit off topic, but earlier on we have that bit where the colonel says, uh, you've been gone for many months. Which also, it's strange, this episode does have quite a few references to the the time that number six has been away. And also in terms of the episode itself, as we discussed, the length of time the episode is taking place over. Uh, Which is quite explicit um, for an episode of The Prisoner.
1: Yeah, because the the Colonel says, when he's interrogating him, thinking that he's a double agent, he says, you know, you've been gone for months and then we get a, a mm. coded message. Which, you know, for the second episode in a series, <laughs> doesn't seem like it ought to have been months.
0: Yeah. yeah. But as Number Six realises that he has heard the chimes of Big Ben strike eight, it seems to twig with him that something is wrong. So he, he obviously got the watch from the polish contact of nadia early on which should theoretically be running on polish time which is an hour ahead and so he's realized that actually something is very wrong because that guy must have been either using a watch that kept uh london time (laughs) possible um or more likely he is i suppose still in the time zone that he was in right back at the start, when he had just gone 30 miles from uh, the village. The implication being that he hasn't actually gone very far at all.
1: Mm. And I think we have to assume that because we saw all that footage of them being loaded onto a ship and then put on a plane, it must have been that final plane journey, mm. I suppose, that landed them somewhere nearby to mm. be transported by road. one can assume, How they got in there without going on a helicopter at any point, I'm not entirely (laughs) sure. Yeah, and they've just ended up, much like the taxi ride, you can go anywhere Mm. you want as long as you end up back here in the end.
0: Yeah, and it turns out, you know, as he looks around the room, he realises that, you know, he heard the chimes of Big Ben, but there is uh, something stranger going on. He looks round for wires and eventually, pulling on most of them, he finds that one of them seems to stop the sound and... Again, very village style as well. It turns out that there's a radio, well, a, like a reel-to-reel uh, setup, which is playing the sounds of London and indeed the sounds of the chimes of Big Ben, creating that you know that feeling that he's actually in London, whereas uh, he's not at all. And I love the fact that just you know wordlessly, you know, the realization that he is still in the village, that this was all a setup, and him just kind of very calmly, quite stoically just, you know, exiting the room past the colonel, who, was, who was probably thought, well, I think at one point he must have thought that that Number Six was going to kill him <laughs> you know, when he found out. But the fact that you know Six is so controlled in this mm. and it's almost like he's gone back into uh, sort of hibernation mode. He's just thinking about what to do next and he sort of calmly uh, leaves the building uh and as the door as the door opens one of those wonderful moments it happens a few times i suppose in the series but those scenes where he opens the door and immediately the sound and the visuals of the village sort of Mm. hit his senses as they do ours and you realize that he's he's all the time just been in the village
1: yeah it's he he must running through his mind must have been how close he just came Mm. to actually being fooled Mm the the way the way that he just kind of walks off silently it's it's almost as if um retreating back into his own mind is his best defense mechanism hmm.
0: but again it's it's strange that and again it goes into where this episode may fit in the timeline of things this is a more seasoned prisoner than one might expect mm-hmm. uh, so maybe he has been around for a while at this point even though the episode is the second one to be aired
1: of course you get that wonderful moment where Number Six is outside the building and he turns around to see Fotheringay and Number Two and Nadia just standing there side by side very stoically looking at him.
0: Mm. And there's a nice reference that Number Two uh, makes to potentially the bigger conspiracy at play when Fotheringay asks Number Two um, what his next orders are going to be. Mm. And uh, Number Two responds that the colonel will give those orders, uh, when they've all gone back to London. Uh, not number two, but father and the Colonel. Mm. So, and we're left really unsure where exactly the village is.
1: Yeah, because for all he knows, it actually is in Lithuania, or it's literally anywhere else in the world <laughs> that they could have just pretended it to be. Yeah. And as he wanders back through the village to his house, and uh, the announcement comes over the tannies of a brand new competition For residents of the village, this time seascapes. (laughs) (laughs) What a bunch of bastards! (laughs) (laughs) And then, just to turn things completely on their head from where we were at the very beginning, you finally see number two and Nadia as she's leaving, and she tells number two, You know, not to worry, it was a good idea, you did your best, and I'll stress it in my report. And you realize that actually. She seems to be senior to everybody else there
0: <laughs> and I like the fact that the reference suggests that number two is somebody who needs approval from his superiors mm. as well, which fits with number two's outlook on uh, on the whole way the village works and and you know his own belief in why what they might be doing to number six is actually the right thing to do. Uh,
2: six. 42, one, one, back
0: to the so, that was our round-up of The Chimes of Big Ben, <laughs> episode 2 of The Prisoner, but just like Arrival, for those of you who don't know, there's also an alternative cut of The Chimes of Big Ben, which um, I remember first seeing it on, I think it might have been the 35th anniversary edition uh, DVDs that came out. Well, it's quite a low-quality version. It's clearly sort of, you know, a videotape um, version which was released. Uh, Like the alternative version of Arrival, it has the alternative end credit scene with with the Earth and the universe and the big pop logo that we chatted (laughs) about um, in the previous episode. It also has um, the slightly different opening credit sequence, which has uh, different music. There are a couple of sort of cut lines, cut scenes, which we thought we'd highlight as well as being of potential interest. Um, Obviously, they're not canon because they don't appear in the episodes, but they give quite an interesting insight into potentially what was material that may have uh, formed some quite interesting aspects of the mythology established in this episode.
1: Yes. so on Nydia's first day in the village, when she returns in the evening having spent time talking to number two, in the main version, uh, you see Number Six um, say good evening, and then they go in and they have a drink. In the alternate scene, uh, there's a bit before that where, when Nadia comes back, Number Six is using this thing called a tri a triquet tri- triquetrum.
0: A triquetrum. He says it in like voiceover, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's it's basically a, I guess a crude way of measuring your location using the movement of the stars. Mm. It's like some kind of wooden contraption. He says it's a it's an ancient Greek device mm. for measuring your location, and he's got a little notebook and he's made some sketches of Ursa Minor and Ursa Major mm. in the
0: notebook. Yes, he's clearly trying to locate where the village is. What I like about this is um, it links also to the uh, use of the constellation symbols which are seen on the big wall of the room where the supervisor is with the with the room with the the people on the sort of rotating seesaw kind of thing with the viewing panels and all this (laughs) yeah it's um yeah it's weird that they that they always show those scenes of uh of uh, star constellations then but they never really come up again but in this episode i wonder if they were ever thinking about introducing this as a another motif that will be part of the prisoner mythology
1: yeah i think it may have been um it may have been rob fairclough's book that i read this in Mm. but there was some script that was rejected or a scene from a script that was rejected Mm. or something like that where number six was trying to figure out his location by looking at the migration patterns of birds (laughs) and patrick mcguin apparently um, dismissed this because he said, heroes don't go birdwatching. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if he was also like, heroes don't look at the star. We really don't want any of that. <laughs> I wonder if it was a similar thing.
0: You never know. <laughs> and the other bit is to do with uh, a slightly extended sentence that uh, Fotheringay says.
1: Yeah, I, I did a complete double take when we watched the alternate one recently. Um, And I kept going back and watching the same scenes again and again. When Fotheringay gets the telephone call and he says, yes, I've got the coded message, what time and all that kind of thing. And he said, yeah, I'm very looking forward to seeing him. In the alternate version, the scene doesn't end there. He says a couple more things on the phone. He says something like, of course, you know, we were more than just work colleagues. We went to school together. Hmm. And I do wonder why they cut that from the final version. Hmm. Because it's just one continuous scene. And when you when you watch that and then watch the the can version, it, it's very abruptly cut before he keeps talking yeah. on the phone. But the idea that they may have been old school friends, it somehow kind of deepens the possibility of betrayal <laughs> that yeah. Fothering is in on this.
0: Yeah, which was established with the character of Cobb in, in Arrival as well.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, brings up all sorts of messy, tangly issues of how, you know, a kind of old boys, old school Thai network operates through the civil service and British politics Mm. and all these problems.
0: Mm. Yes, those are just sort of some of the the key things we thought were worth highlighting in the alternate version of uh, Chimes of Big Ben. I think overall, you know, I do like Chimes of Big Ben. I think it's a I keep referring to it as a caper episode. it is it's like a you know it's it's one of those episodes which I think is quite fun to watch, but actually on on second viewing i mean or third or fourth as we've done, you know the intricacies of it don't really hold up, but that doesn't really matter you're not in, you know, I'm not saying it's a badly plotted episode I'm saying that it's interesting how the more you watch it, the more you get a sense of what's going on much earlier on in the episode, and certainly um there are clearly some logical leaps that you have to make as a viewer to understand how this conspiracy involved in uh, making number six think he's gone to London actually work I mean how that's actually being played out it's it's quite convoluted I think (laughs) because all the reactions of all the characters seemingly suggest until the very end that they are aware that he's trying to make an escape if they're in the village or in London, um, certainly the reaction from Fotheringay suggests that he is genuinely waiting and looking forward to number six returning. When the deception is actually revealed, you know, one wonders what all the different bits were actually about. Why was it, you know, number two and the supervisor um, were, put, you know, were portraying the escape so convincingly, unless they actually believed it was an escape? But then you also see it at the end that they were in on the scheme with Nadia. So they must have known that's what was happening. So there was no reason for them to pretend that there was a ruse going on early on, as you pointed out. There's also this, you know, the strange way that they show characters in isolation reacting almost for the purpose of the audience to be tricked. Um, the notable thing is probably Father and Gabe getting the phone call.
1: mm if indeed it is the same father and gay who turns up in the village,
0: crazy theory, crazy theory.
1: Yeah. So this this was a theory that we were discussing. It it makes it makes more sense in retrospect after Schizoid Man. But the idea that just because two people look like the same people doesn't mean they're the same person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because it would be really interesting if, and again, we're not viewing this idea in the context of the whole series i suppose but just in the context of this episode it'd be really interesting if the message that fotheringay gets is a real message sent to the real fotheringay in london because note the colonel isn't around in that scene Mm. and then by the end when number six has seemingly found his way to london it would be interesting if because they're in the village the characters of the colonel and fotheringay are not in fact the actual versions of those characters but they're actually doubles of those characters which is why that Fotheringay and that colonel are up to some other set of nefarious deeds the (laughs) whole time under instruction from somebody else i mean it could genuinely be the case that they are not actually the uh Fotheringay and colonel that number six knew they could just be the ones created by the village as part of the ruse to get number six to reveal why he resigned um, and certainly it's clear they go to all this effort to make your house look the same. Yeah, <laughs> It's clear they have doubles wandering around. Because um, we saw that with the gardener and the electrician in, in Arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a wacky theory. But it'd be really funny if uh, that would explain potentially the reaction that Fotheringay has when he's on the phone versus his ultimate uh, deceit when it shows that he's in league with number two and Nadia at the end of the episode.
1: Mm. The problem with the prisoner is that In the show in which in the world of the show the powers behind the village are attempting to make Number Six unable to trust or believe in anything that he sees it ultimately causes the viewer to fail to trust in anything that we see (laughs) on the show at all.
0: So in that state of utter confusion that uh, (laughs) the episode apparently has left us in and also maybe we've left you in as well um, we'd like to once again thank All of our listeners, everyone, whether you're watching it for the first time or the hundredth time for tuning in to this episode of the Tally Ho. Let us know what your thoughts are on the Chimes of Big Ben or uh, The Prisoner generally or what you think of the podcast or anything you'd like to see in upcoming episodes of the podcast as well. Um, Because we'd love to get your feedback on things. It's really nice to speak to people who are uh, watching along with us as we're doing this epic rewatch over the next few months.
1: But one more thing before we go. Uh, once again, we've got a message from Rick Davey of the Unmutual website, who's going to wrap up all the latest news on the worlds of the Prisoner and Patrick McGoon.
2: Hi, this is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the Prisoner. Following on from the recent announcement regarding the April 15th London location tour events for the Prisoner and Danger Man and the September Prisoner Convention in Seattle there's yet another date for your diary on Saturday the 14th of July 2018 Dave Lally will be organizing a location tour and picnic in Hatfield Hertfordshire to visit the remaining locations from the Danger Man episode Colony 3 Colony 3 is probably the most prisoner-esque episode of Danger Man, which finds Patrick McGowan's John Drake character in an Eastern Bloc training village for spies. Check out the Unmutual website for more details on this event. In other news, Fenella Fielding, the actress who so memorably provided the village voice in The Prisoner, is back on the road again, doing readings from her autobiography, Do You Mind If I Smoke? For more details, visit FenellaFielding.com. In other book news, it's been announced that actress Annette Andre, guest star in the episode It's Your Funeral and of course probably best remembered for her role as Genie in the series Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, is currently writing her memoirs, due for publication in the autumn of 2018. Although The Prisoner was famously not a happy experience for her, the book is sure to include a section concerning her time on the series. And finally, Ed Fordham is currently editing Volume 2 of the three-volume series of Prisoner books entitled It Means What It Says, and is asking for Prisoner fans to contribute articles for the charity tune. You can contact Ed directly at it means what it Says 50 at gmail.com. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the Prisoner. Be seeing you!
0: So thank you, Rick and The Unmutual for providing us with our fortnightly news update on what's going on in the world of The Prisoner. We look forward to some more information from you in the uh, next episode as well. Um, To everyone tuning into episodes of The Tally Ho, the next episode will actually be the second part of our interview with Chris Rodley, which started off... Uh, before talking about Patrick McGowan and The Prisoner as its focus, and we'll be continuing but focusing more on the work of David Lynch and the world of Twin Peaks. So Chris Rodley is the editor of uh, the wonderful book Lynch on Lynch, and so he really straddled our interests in both uh, The Prisoner and Twin Peaks as well when we got a chance to talk to him. So the second part of our Chris Rodley interview will be out uh, next week. And that's
1: going to be out under our Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee heading, which is the heading for all of our Twin Peaks episodes. But it's very much a continuation of part one, which came out in last week's Tally Ho.
0: Yeah. And if you're listening to these at random times, making references to last week and next week is completely <laughs> meaningless. But we're going to carry on doing it anyway. Um, yeah. So to get... Our podcasts, uh, you can find them under the name of our mothership podcast, Time for Cakes and Ale. That's where you can find the Tally Ho, which you're listening to, and also Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Uh, Please do get in touch. We're on Twitter, at TFCAA. We're on Facebook. Just search for the page Time for Cakes and Ale. Uh, We have a website, which is www.timeforcakesandale.com. And uh, yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. So drop us a line and tell us what you think of The Prisoner, the podcast and everything in between.
1: Yeah. Or if you know what that tapestry is meant to be. (laughs) Because I really want to (laughs) know.
0: But for now, until next time, be be seeing seeing you. you.